Get ready to laugh out loud at the Tribeca Festival, June 5th to June 16th in NYC. Experience hilarious talks, comedy specials, and feel-good films with your fan-favorite comedians like Hannah Einbinder, Judd Apatow, Neil Patrick Harris, Teg Nataro, and more. You have to be there. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. Did you know the Tribeca Festival showcases more than just film and TV? Tribeca's audio storytelling program, sponsored by Audible, is happening June 9th to June 13th in NYC. It includes premieres of new indie podcasts, plus exclusive live tapings of popular podcasts like Slow Burn, Criminal with special guest Melissa McCarthy, and Vibe Check with special guest Lena Waithe. Don't miss it. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. What have we lost to the internet? I'm Sean Illing, and I'm your host for Vox Conversations. When I was 13 years old, my dad took me to Radio Shack at the mall, back when there were still Radio Shacks and malls, to get our first Tandy computer. It was this big bulky, slow thing. I didn't really know anything about computers or the internet, but it was exciting as hell. I still remember the sound of that glorious 56K dial-up modem. Can you hear it? But then things changed. The internet became more accessible, more pervasive, more immersive. The journey from AOL to the iPhone wasn't overnight, but it kind of feels like it was. Today, the internet isn't something you do at home for fun. It's everywhere, all the time. We're never not plugged in. We're never truly offline. And the world has been so transformed by these technologies that it's almost impossible to imagine living without them. Even if we wanted to, we couldn't. My guest today is Pamela Paul. Paul is the editor of the New York Times Book Review and the author of a new book called 100 Things We've Lost to the Internet. The title makes it sound like a lamentation, but it's not exactly that. It's a swan song for a world that sort of died without us really noticing that it happened. It's less about how the world changed and more about how the world changed us. So this isn't a sob session about how great everything was before the internet and how awful everything is now. Paul is the first to tell you that it's not that simple. Is there a bit of nostalgia in all this? Absolutely. But still, this is a conversation about trade-offs and a reflection on some of the weird but worthwhile things that have disappeared from our digital world. Pamela Paul, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Your book got me thinking a lot more about the role the internet has played in my own life. And I'm old enough to remember the before times. And I think I we're maybe close to the same age. I'm a millennial just Barely, but are you a Gen Xer? I am, yes. 
But are you are you a Gen Xer at heart? There's like cusp millennials. I think. I mean, so. all of it, of course, is kind of nonsense. But, um, but yeah, yes. I mean, yeah, at, at that level, it is kind of silly and arbitrary. Uh, but I think so. I mean, most of my friends are are Gen Xers, at least my good friends. What's your first memory of the internet? Do you have one? I do. I mean, first of all, this will make clear the slight difference in age. The first computer that we got was um, an Apple II Plus. And I say we because it belonged officially to one of my brothers who really maintained control, though I occasionally would go on to play like Taipan, um, which is a a really fun game. But um, I remember first hearing of something vaguely internet-like my senior year in college from a boyfriend at the time who mentioned that he had been going to the computer lab, which as a full-on humanities person already seemed suspect. Like people went to the computer lab that I knew to print things out. Um, But he had gone there and he was talking about hypertext and what the innovations it was going to bring to the writing of fiction and of essays. And I just thought, you know, my brain just sort of was like, didn't compute and, and, and moved away. And I went from that to moving back to New York right around the time that AOL you know, became a thing. And there was email at my at my first job in publishing in New York. Um, so email was where I first encountered it in the early 90s. Okay, so now you have this book cataloging a 100 things that we have lost to the internet. I'm really curious how that came about. I mean, do you have some kind of running list in your head of just things that annoyed you about the internet or things we were losing to the internet? If not that, I'm just kind of curious what sparked the project and why you thought, yep, now's the time to write it? Well, it was sort of three things. One is that I have been, as a writer, as a reporter, before I was at the book review, I wrote a few pieces, a number of pieces, kind of looking at the intersection of the internet and sort of real life, in particular, the impact on individuals, on relationships, on families, on romance, and the way in which we conduct things like marriage and divorce, and on the culture. So I'd been sort of lightly reporting around it. And then in, I think it was now 2018, or maybe it was 2019, but I wrote an op-ed for the opinion section that in my head was called uh, The Lost Art of Boredom. And the, the headline, I think, ended up being Let Children Get Bored Again, because it really struck me that not just for children, but for all of us, you really don't have moments of boredom um, because you always have the internet right at your fingertips and everything is on there, every kind of diversion or form of information, any way to fill up those moments. So that for me, for example, like the shower, you know, might be the one time where I don't have access, and it's probably the same for many other people, to that whole online world, which means you really don't have those downtimes, boredom. And so from there, I thought about writing. And it's interesting, you use the word annoyed. And I think that annoyance may have been one of the sort of kind of fortifying emotions behind it. I thought, let me take all these things that I'm sort of slightly annoyed or upset about and write about them. And ultimately, what I did was kind of take away the upset and the annoyance and try to stay away from you know, what does this all mean moving forward? And really to take a look back, because I think one thing that's happened with the internet 
is that everything goes so quickly. We're all living in this like sort of constant turnover of information that we rarely have the time or take the time to pause and reflect. And that's what I wanted to do in the book. The topic of boredom is extremely interesting to me. It does seem that we've lost the ability to be bored or endure boredom. And you do write a lot about that. You write about solitude in the book. Do you think there's a meaningful difference between solitude and loneliness? Has the meaning of these words changed in the internet era? I do think so. Being entirely alone and disconnected is something that I don't think you can recapture now. Because if you are alone, you have your phone. And anyone can ping you reach out to you at any time and vice versa. So you don't ever really have to be alone. But it's interesting, it kind of changes things around too, right? Because if no one is pinging you or liking whatever you're posting or reaching out, then I think people feel lonelier than they would have before when being alone. You know what I mean? It's it's sort of harder to endure solitude without a feeling of loneliness. Yeah, and it's hard to know the difference between, you know, isolation and what you call in the book, delicious solitude. And, and it's fascinating to me, boredom wasn't even really a category of experience until the mid-19th century or so. I mean, we had words like dull or tedious, but being bored wasn't problematic enough at that point to have to conceptualize it <laughs> as an issue. And then it does seem like as we've moved more and more into the kind of modern world, especially the digital world, it's just supercharged that. Like that none of us can stand to be bored. And we don't have to be anymore. We just don't have to be. There's always something. Exactly. Well, let me skip around a little bit because you wrote that one paradox of the internet is that while it has opened up the world to us, it has also made that world feel small. I mean, look, we all kind of create our own chambers, our own walls. I mean, there's a, a bunch of different things that it means. But let me talk for a minute about social media. So on social media, because of my day job at the New York Times, I follow mostly people who are writing about books or about journalism. And so I can go online, right, and look at my assorted feeds and think, wow, this is amazing. Everyone, everyone is talking about books. But of course, you realize, well, no, they're not all talking about books. They're only talking about books in my world because I've self-selected my world. And elsewhere on the internet, they're talking perhaps about immigration or they're talking about Jay-Z or they're talking about the NFL. It's just that I am not aware of that greater world because I've built my own little world here online. Um, and, you know, we're all kind of creating our own versions of the world that we inhabit. And I think we've seen, you know, many results of this kind of creation of these small echo chambers or these kind of subcultures that can feel all encompassing to us because that's what we're surrounded in at any given moment. The other thing is that, you know, take travel, for example. It used to be that if you wanted to go somewhere else in the world, it felt very far away. You really didn't know that much about it before you went. You know, you might go out and buy like a Lonely Planet or photos. You might ask some people, maybe you'd clipped a couple of articles uh, from the travel section of your local paper about this place, or you'd seen slides of it on a slideshow like years ago during some like tedious family slideshow at your aunt's house or whatever. 
But now, of course, you can instantly look at any place in the entire world. You can find out all about it. You can see video feeds from it. You can see people TikToking from that corner of the world. And so it doesn't seem so far away, right? It kind of shrinks the world down. But at the same time, you're only seeing it on the size of your phone screen or your laptop. So it's kind of made very small because of the way in which we're it's being delivered to you. Almost too small. You know, I don't know if the word appears anywhere in the book. I don't recall if it does, forgive me. But the word I'm thinking of is solipsism. And it does seem to be a recurring thread from start to finish there. You know, and you describe feeling like the internet has made all of us feel like we're always on the record. And you talk about, you know, walking through Times Square and feeling like you're a character in everyone else's live streams. And yet we're also more than ever the protagonist of our own weird virtual lives. We're constantly at the center of our own projected drama. I mean, do do you think that we are now more solipsistic or more self-centered than we were before the internet? Or is this just kind of, um, you know, an illusion? No, I think, (laughs) I don't think you're wrong at all. I think it does make us more solipsistic, more narcissistic. It's at one point I asked, like, are we all sort of the stars of our own reality TV show? I mean, you can be, for example, in a group chat where some kind of, you know, terrible argument is going on. And again, it just clouds your vision, right? Let's say it's a group chat with like 20 people that maybe you work with or you went to college with or it's organized around some kind of shared interest. And let's say everyone is upset with you. You know, it then feels like the entire world is angry and you kind of walk around sort of projecting this like feeling of defensiveness. Well, everyone must know that I am under attack, you know, because of what I said in the knitting circle or whatever it might be. Whereas in reality, no one else knows what's going on with you. I mean, it's funny, you know, even within my world, let's say of journalism, there are a million different stories going on at any given time. And probably every, you know, journalist sort of feels like whatever's going on in their world is kind of like, it's the story, it's the central thing. Yet, if you aren't in that particular, you know, narrow band of information, you really have no idea what's going on. You have no idea. You could be, you know, the subject of attack on Facebook and feel like everyone is set against you. But if people didn't look at Facebook that week, they don't have any idea of what's going on. Um, So I really do think it kind of distorts our perception of ourselves and our importance, (laughs) you know, relative to other people, relative to bigger things, um, because everything gets magnified um, online. Oh, no question, right? Yeah, no question. You know, no one thinks about you as much as you, but it's very easy to forget that for all the reasons you just laid out. I mean, do you think we're more paranoid now? Like for precisely (laughs) the reasons you just laid out, which is obviously not psychologically healthy. No, it's not healthy at all. But I think, you know, I I have a line in the book, the internet comes for us all one day. And I think that's particularly hard for kids and for teenagers, because, you know, it used to be like you could walk around your high school, like between two classes with a piece of toilet paper, like stuck to the bottom of your shoe or whatever. And, you know, it's hugely mortifying, but maybe three other people would notice, right? And it's not going anywhere. That story has no way to really last. Like if even if somebody noticed um, and they weren't your friend and they giggled with a couple of people, it kind of disappears. But now someone could have whipped out a phone and recorded you and snapped 
mapped it to all their friends and turned it into some meme. And suddenly you're the person that has the toilet paper on your shoe and it could get circulated forever. You know, these things don't really go away. That's the other thing is that things that happen online kind of stay online. And and while, as I said, everything moves really quickly and there's a kind of, you know, 24-7, like 24-minute, second-second, like turnover of stories, anything can be resurfaced at any time. So even if everyone forgets about it the next day, it's still there. It's still out there. Someone could reach out and grab it and say, oh, remember when? And here's the evidence. Yeah, I don't know if this is on your list of 100 things we've lost, but forgetfulness seems like one of the things we've lost because no one can forget anything because everything is etched in you know internet ink forever. And that seems bad too. Yeah, I mean, that's the last chapter really of the book, which is about closure. You know, you never really get to move on. Um, and I touched on that, you know, in a few other chapters, like ex-boyfriends, right? You used to be able to break up with a partner and just kind of out of sight, out of mind, right? You know, maybe you would encounter one another if you'd bumped into a mutual friend or a former colleague of theirs or someone that you knew together. But it was pretty easy to just kind of forget about that person. Online, it becomes a lot harder because, first of all, there's social media and you have to make all kinds of decisions. Do I mute this person? Do I unfollow them? Do I block them? You know, there's all different kinds of ways to try to shut them out. But they will come back. They will be suggested to you as friends or you'll see them on the outskirts commenting on other people. And then on the internet overall, like you have an infinitely large and always accessible database that, you know, it's really hard not to just go in and be like, hmm, let me just Google that person. I have a friend who, you know, periodically will say like, hey, you remember what happened to so-and-so, like someone we went to elementary school with? And it's like, no, I've, I've completely forgotten. But she will have looked them up and have all these interesting things to say. It's, you know, you have to ask yourself, like, is this natural that these people kind of continue to play some kind of weird, even if peripheral, role in our lives, people that just kind of naturally disappeared a long time ago. Another thing on the list is being in the moment. And everyone probably agrees that it it's harder to be in the moment now. But you also say that, you know, it's too simplistic to blame all of that on our phones. And I don't know, is it too simple to blame <laughs> it on our phones? Because it kind of seems like it's mostly about our phones. Well, you know, they, it's so funny, too, because we say phone, right? But it's not a telephone. Right, <laughs> no one, no one uses right. it for calling. It, it's, it's the internet. It's like a little portable internet that we carry around. And I think, you know, we've just all had moments, right, of being really disconcerted by just how many places we are at once. So one moment that stands out to me is I was on a ferry to Catalina Island with my family. So that's where I physically was. I was on the ferry to Catalina Island. But I got an email from a big, important Broadway figure complaining about something. So now I was suddenly thinking about what this Broadway person was complaining about. And I was thinking about him and his various threats and this and that. But I was also, at the same time, looking at the fact that Notre Dame was burning. And I was thinking about, wow, like all of this is happening and Notre Dame is burning, you know. So I turned to my husband. I'm like, Notre Dame is is burning. And now we're looking at Notre Dame burning. And the reason we're looking at Notre Dame burning is because everyone in Paris is holding up their phone looking at Notre Dame burning. And if you then went back and looked at images of the crowds watching, you know, it's like any other major 
cataclysmic event where you're seeing people generally there and looking at whatever's happening. But a lot of the time, they're holding up their phones. And often, they're looking down at their phones, They're actually watching what's happening on their phone, even though it's right in front of them. Or they're talking to someone else on their phone or texting with someone else who isn't there, who might be in Germany or back in their apartment and not in front of Notre Dame watching it burn. And they're with that person at the same time that they are actually at the event. So you have these these kind of moments where you're simultaneously in many different places, thinking about many different completely unrelated things at once. And it just means it's like the anti-meditation. You are absolutely not alone with yourself taking in what's surrounding you, but you're in a million other places at the same time. You know, I guess it's also, I don't think human beings have ever been particularly good about being in the moment. We've probably always looked for ways to escape it, to distract ourselves and Obviously, the internet isn't the first technology to offer us a diversion from life, but it does, I think, in a radically new way, present endless possibilities for distraction. And that makes it even more immersive and more seductive and more consuming, really. Yeah, I mean, look, (laughs) if we were all able to be in the moment all the time, there would be no need for meditation, right? We'd all just naturally be able to tune in to ourselves and tune everything else out. It's really hard. We don't need the internet for that. And yet, I have to say, at the end of the day, if you are, even if you're offline, you've put your phone away, let's even assume it's in the other room. Because if it's sitting right there by your bed, it's very presence that's going to make you think, well, what's on that? What's on that? But if you think about your end of the day and the things that are going through your mind, generally speaking, I think for most people, it's not just about people you've actually seen or been in touch with offline for that day. It's probably a lot of the things that are occupying you are interactions that you've had purely online. And even before COVID, you know, we've been living so much more online during this period, probably than any time before. But even before that, a lot of the information that you've taken in that you're kind of mulling in your head as you try to drift off at night are things that you have absorbed from the internet. Do you have any theories on why, in your words, we disrupt ourselves all the time? Why can't we just stop and be here now? Oh, my God, because we're not perfect, (laughs) Sean. We're not relaxed. Um, Or maybe everyone else is and I'm not. I think it's, it's hard. I think that, again, think about how much more information we're taking in in any given day than someone did in the 19th century when the people you encountered were all in person probably in your family, in your house, maybe in your village. You know, you weren't traveling anywhere. If you read the newspaper, then you were absorbing a certain amount of information. But again, a lot less than you are now with access to every single newspaper and every single non-newspaper or news organization source of news and information online. There's just a lot more that's in there kind of competing for your attention. And it's hard to focus. You know, I think even if you don't have some variation of attention deficit disorder, I think that we all have aspects of it now because there are habits that the internet encourages. I mean, let's take, for example, Slack, which is 
a really great, in many ways, you know, text messaging application that's used in many workplaces, including where I work. But it does this amazing thing, uh, which I've silenced during the course of this conversation. It's little noise that it makes is a knock-knock noise, um, like someone's knocking on your door. That's the notification sound. And as much as you might be absorbed in what you're doing, you know, maybe even one of those kind of flow situations that we're all supposed to ideally be in, in which you're fully immersed and excited and challenged by the task at hand, you hear that little knock-knock noise. And it's awfully hard not to just say, well, wait a minute, let's just check, let's just make sure that it's not an emergency. Or there have been four knocks now. If I don't stop doing what it is that I'm doing, I'm going to have like four little knocks to deal with when I finish. So maybe I should just kind of preemptively stop and have a look right now and just see what they are. We all do it. Yeah, and maybe this is just one of those areas where there's a disconnect between the olds and the youngs, the people who were kind of born with the internet and the people who were born before it and had to adapt to it. I mean, I know I have seen some research showing that because one of the examples you you mentioned in the book is a teenager who's at the concert or a ball game and you know, stops to you know, post a selfie as that's you know as an example of someone not being where they are, not being mindful or present. But maybe. Maybe they are. Maybe what it means to be present is just different for digital natives, for people who don't know what it's like to be in a world without these tools. You know, it's interesting. One of the things that I write about in the book is the theater, right? Live performances. And I think Broadway and other performance venues have really struggled with how much do you fight it? How much do you allow it, accommodate it? And, you know, there have been entire shows, some of which thoroughly encourage it um, or use it as a tool and ask people to take out their phones and to do this and that. But, you know, some people argue now, well, maybe maybe we shouldn't prevent people from taking out their phones. Maybe for younger audiences, maybe this is what keeps them engaged to be able to, you know, interact with whatever's going on stage on their phone simultaneously. It really is a, a very different way of appreciating a performance, but it might be, you know, again, for the youngs or the youngs at heart, maybe that's the direction things are going in for better or for worse. Yeah. And look, I totally relate to this, but there is a lot of uh, nostalgia, I think, for people like you and me who remember the before times, you know, I mean, that the world is always changing. The internet has definitely changed how we live in, in really radical ways, but technology has been doing that for a long time. But the pace of change now is, I think, pretty unique in human history and pretty destabilizing. And it's really hard to see the world you know just sort of disappear every every five to seven years and give way to a whole new culture, really, in lots of ways that is just completely foreign to people who aren't you know, native to it. Yeah, I mean, I'm probably temperamentally, like, naturally about 80% pessimist, and I'm a big worrier. And I think the sort of popular conversation, the discourse around the internet is always thinking, where are we going? What does this mean? And then sometimes we stop and we think, how did we get here? Wait a minute, how did this go from X only three years ago to whatever it is that where we are now? And a lot of that can be frightening. Like some of it can be scaremongering or fearmongering, you know, some of it exaggerated or misplaced fears. Some of it, of course, is totally justified. But what I tried to do is to kind of, in this book, not focus so much on the future that would be if, if we didn't sort of 
change things and not to really think about, well, how did we get here? How did this happen? But to really say, what was it like before? What was it like before? Because I think that's a kind of perspective that gets lost, again, because things are moving so quickly. And in terms of the genesis of this book, you asked how I came up with a list of of 100 things. And I think I started off with, you know, something like 168. And it kept morphing and changing. Some things kind of collapsed and new things popped up. But the other thing that happened is that it, it really, at first, was about here's this thing that used to be, here's how it has changed, this is what it all means. And I really kind of cut out those last two things, not because they're not important, but I think that, first of all, they're really being talked about a lot elsewhere. And I think, you know, this is the topic right now when you think about sort of people looking at maybe some of the negative implications of technology. I also wanted to focus on where we've been because while, as you said, a lot of it is nostalgic, it's not all bad. I mean, the internet is pretty great, too. I hesitate to think about what the lockdown would have been like without the internet. I mean, can you imagine how would we have gotten access to health information? How would we have all signed up for, you know, vaccines? How would we have had access to vital supplies for people who were seriously immunocompromised and couldn't leave their home? How would we have been able to connect with friends and family and, you know, be able to, to grieve together? How would we have stayed connected for many people who were lucky enough to be able to continue some kind of employment in a distance way online? It enabled people to keep up with their jobs. I mean, it's hard to imagine, in my own case, how a newsroom would have functioned without the internet. So there's a lot of good there, too. Some of the the old-timey ways, as much as I am kind of, again, naturally nostalgic and old at heart, you know, they weren't always (laughs) for the better. Yeah, trade-offs. Lots and lots of trade-offs. But you did mention children earlier, and this is something I really wanted to ask you about both because I'm, I'm just instinctively interested in it and also because I have a two-year-old at home. And so this, ah. I'm thinking about these kinds of things in ways I don't really quite understand yet. And it's pretty clear that teenagers, especially today, who are just immersed in, in this world, social media in particular, feel enormous pressure to perform their identity online, to almost brand themselves online, to validate themselves online. What do you think this is doing to the psychology of kids who are living these heavily virtual, heavily mediated lives? Well, one of the things I talked about is, you know, the absence of uninhibitedness. And I think, you know, your, your child is too. You may soon see that they begin kind of mugging, not just for the camera, but for the video camera. Again, most of us, even people who did own like an actual video camera, which for a long time was a pretty pricey item, you know, we didn't take that out and record every instant of our child's lives. I don't know about you, but my parents have exactly one video of me. I mean, and it it was filmed and it's about four seconds long, my time in it, and I'm a little baby and I'm being carried out to a little backyard, you know, blow up kiddie pool where my brother, one of my brothers kneels and kisses my foot or something. And that's my full documented life up into the iPhone. My parents didn't own a video camera. I think it must have belonged to someone else. And 
over the years, it got like transferred. I think we have a videotape of it that obviously can no longer be played anywhere because no one has a videotape player. But think about kids today and all of the different videos and, and moments of their own past lives, their past that they can access at any time. I just, you have to wonder, what does that do? I mean, my youngest child, for example, we have a little video that we took on the iPhone of his first laugh. Like, he can listen to that any time. I wonder what it would have been like if I had been able to go back at any moment and hear my first laugh. And, you know, then you sort of become aware of yourself, as you mentioned earlier, like a kind of character, the hero of your own life. You are now someone who is the subject of all of these films, of all of these photos. And what's amazing to me when you look at photos of teenagers, it's like teenagers at any time in history, which is to say, like, there's a lot of conformity. There's a lot of sort of testing out of new identities. But... In terms of conformity, you'll often see like they're all making the same face, you know. There's a funny face that suddenly becomes very popular. For a long time, it's sticking out your tongue or it's puckering your lips in a certain way or, you know, it's mugging for the camera. You can look at huge groups of kids and they're all doing the same thing. And I don't think that that really existed to the same extent when, you know, what you had was at best maybe a Polaroid, right? And that was such an innovation. You had film that you would take and you just wouldn't take a zillion pictures and become quite so practiced at how you came across on film. When I think about how the internet has changed our self-image, how it's invaded spaces that used to be very intimate. The next thing that comes to mind is, well, pornography. Luckily, Pamela Paul has thought a lot about this. And after a quick break, I'll ask her about what internet porn is doing to us. You wrote a book back in 2005 called Pornified. We obviously cannot have a conversation about the internet and what it's doing to us without talking about porn. And, you know, obviously you were talking about the implications, the the risk of living in a world that was so saturated with porn back in 2005. And obviously since then, it's only become more ubiquitous. And I definitely want to ask you what you think that's doing to kids, but I also am curious what you think it's doing to adults, I mean, to our relationships, to our sex lives. I don't remember when I saw this, but it was definitely in the last year or two. Some data showing that millennials are having significantly less sex than previous generations, especially boomers, but also Gen Xers. Do you think that has something to do with too many people spending too much time looking at porn on their computer? There were certainly signs of that in the research that I did now 16 years ago. But I think that it's not necessarily that it's a substitute, right? I don't think people, you know, sort of set out and consume pornography because they don't want to have sex. But I think that there's a lot of related aspects going on there. I think, you know, look, in many ways, obviously, pornography in general is a performance. And as with anything that feels like a performance, it can produce anxiety, right? Performance anxiety on a whole number of levels of like, am I doing this right? Do I look the right way? And I think that, again, being exposed to anything where there are images out there that might seem 
unattainable or nerve-wracking than to turn to your own life and say, well, where does this put me? I think especially for young people, that's really hard. It's intimidating. Well, yeah, it is. I'm glad you went there. I'm glad you mentioned anxiety because I think it's very much related to that. I mean, Something else you list in the book is something we've lost is eye contact, right? And I worry a lot about social anxiety. Being out there in the world with other people is scary and unpredictable. Engaging with other people is fraught with all kinds of you know, landmines. But it's also what makes us, us, people, people. And the internet has made it very easy, incredibly easy to disengage from the world of other people or to engage in very mediated ways that eliminate the risk of human interaction. And so you're right. Porn is not a substitute for sex, or certainly it's a, a really poor substitute for sex, but it's a way to satisfy yourself without having to get out there in the world and risk things going wrong or awkwardly. And that seems not good. Well, to your point about anxiety and going back to children, one of the things I think really hit home for a lot of parents and for teachers and school administrators and special education teachers and school psychologists and other counselors is that when kids were taken out of a communal social experience, when they weren't interacting, people really got worried about how their kids were doing, whether they were learning basic social interaction skills, you know, if let's say they were three, four, five, but really at any age, you know, like for a middle schooler, it's a really important thing to go into school. Many of them are going through puberty and it's a really, you know, fraught kind of time and you really need to see people and, and be interacting with them and, and learning how to figure out all of those relationships in real life and to just see one another as little squares on a screen doesn't compare um, and even, you know, just the most basic human interactions. Let's say you're a kid at a new school and your first day of school, it's online. How do you make eye contact with someone? How do you develop a friendship? Like, there's no way to connect to anyone. There's no chance encounters either. Like, everything has to be intentional. It's hard to make new friends. It's hard to change your group of friends. And I think that's one of the reasons now that schools are returning to in-person learning. You're hearing from a lot of parents and teachers and psychologists, child psychologists, that kids are having a lot of social anxiety. It's really difficult to return after a year, maybe a year and a half of being fully remote, not having those social interactions and know how to function among other children. Yeah, I'm sure you saw that story recently by the Wall Street Journal about the Facebook whistleblower who... Oh, yeah. So apparently Instagram. Facebook... Yeah, for people who don't know, they were in possession of data that showed pretty clearly the negative effects of Instagram on teenage girls' self-esteem and body image. And I think most people understand how that could be. There are also some studies showing that social media can also make teens feel more included, less alone, more confident. It's, it's obviously a mixed bag. But what did you make of that story? I take it you weren't terribly surprised. No, not surprised at all. And, you know, and there was a lot of research out there 
on that very subject that other organizations have done. I think what was so interesting in this case is that it was Facebook that had done the research and that was aware of it and covered it up. But in fact, there are a number of organizations that have been looking at teenagers and anxiety. And of course, it's really hard to prove causation. You can probably at best prove correlation that social anxiety and a number of things have sort of ticked upward at the same time that the internet and social media have been introduced among these populations, among teenagers. And look, again, you know, there is a positive side to it. Like, let's say you are a teenager in a small conservative community in Idaho, and you are questioning your gender identity or your sexual preference or you know, the way in which you conceive of yourself that might be a little bit different from those around you, you can easily connect with other people who think like you or feel the same way that you do online. And that provides a sense of community and validation. And that can be really positive. If you're a parent, let's say, of a child who has an unusual genetic disorder, you can connect with other parents, you can exchange information, you don't feel as alone. But again, on the flip side, and going back to what I said earlier about like, whatever world you enter online can feel like the entire world. There are pro-Anna or pro-anorexia websites or groups on every platform in social media in which, you know, girls are urging one another to look thin, be thin, not eat, and to validate that, to validate that as an identity. And that's definitely not healthy. So, you know, on the one hand, you could say, oh, this is really wonderful. There's all these communities for kids who might look different, um, whether it's because they're heavier or thinner or because their interests veer in one way or in another way. It can be positive. It can also be really negative. And it can be affirming something that might be really not in your child's best interests. But again, you're finding other people and that feels validating for good or for ill. Yeah. You know, I think, and I, again, I, I say this as a, a new parent, a lot of this is, I think for me at least, about a, a discomfort that I feel watching my son grow up into a world that is increasingly unfamiliar or certainly, and watching older kids interact with the world in ways that don't make much sense to me, but there's no way to, you can't shield kids from the world in which they live. You can't be in the world without being of the world. And so it's just a reality that we all have to adapt to. Right. And, you know, and you make a good point that, you know, look, it is a mixed bag and these tools aren't necessarily good or bad. Like any tool, it's as good or bad as the people using them. And, you know, I, I think that's, well, that doesn't really solve any problems, but it does. No. Compli- it does complicate. <laughs> I'm not going to fix sure. all the problems here <laughs> yeah. and now, Sean. I wish I yeah. could. I don't think either of us will. But yeah, I mean, it's interesting. You know, when you think about a child, and every parent worries at sort of base about safety, right? But safety is and risks. What risks are? You know, they're really different, and and people home in on on different fears. You know, some people might be worried about sexual predators online, and your child being unsafe because of exposure to that. Um, again, it really depends on the parent and the person. But, you know, some people might be worried about their child being exposed to ideas that they disagree with or that they find to be, you know, dangerous or um, threatening in some way. Others might be afraid that their child might do or say something online when they get to that age that will put them in danger, something that can't be deleted, something that they didn't mean, something that can be misinterpreted. And I think that every parent that I know of any teenager or tween up 
has had an instance in which their child has said or done something and often really inadvertently, not fully realizing what the implications are, that you can't get rid of. I think one of the things that I have in the book is you won't believe what you missed last night or like not knowing what happened. Like we all know what happened. We can all find out what happened the next morning. It's all documented. And and that's really unnerving. So, you know, safety and danger, it depends on, on again, what you're afraid of. But I will say this, it's probably in all likelihood for every parent, the fear that you're fearing for your child is probably not going to end up being the thing that you ought to have been scared of. You know, you sort of, you never know, just as the internet comes for us all, like you sort of never know what's going to trip you up. If, as Pamela says, the internet comes for us all, is that really such a bad thing? I mean, is it such a huge loss to not have to wait for your photos to get developed or to not have to get a friend on the phone when you can't think of the name of that actor who's in that one movie. It seems like the internet has made life much, much easier. So why is it so important to dwell on all the things we've lost? That's what I'll ask Pamela Paul after one more short break. Why do you think it's so important to, maybe lament is too strong a word, but at least reflect or dwell on some of these losses? I mean, a lot of the things you point out in, in the book as examples of things we lost or what you know you could call inefficiencies, right? Mm-hmm. Like a lot of things have gotten a lot easier. You don't have to, you know, to use your example, you know, call your your friend's dad who's a meteorologist to ask about. <laughs> You know, whatever. You can just Google it or Wikipedia it, and no one has to be bored anymore in the waiting room at their dentist office. You can just, you know, doom scroll or whatever it is you do. Why do you think it's it's worthwhile to reflect on, on these things that we've lost, even if they're not all bad? Well, you know, it's interesting because one real important reason that I think we forget is that we do have a choice for a lot of these things. Some of these things are lost, 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 gone, right? But a lot of them aren't really lost. It's that they've either changed so radically that they're kind of almost unrecognizable from what they once were. Or, you know, it's like fantasy baseball. It hasn't gone away. It's just done in a really different way that it's not at all what it used to be, where you'd wait for the paper and you'd look up all the charts and someone would have to fill out all these things and then distribute it among your fantasy baseball league and whatever else. Like, it's just different now. And poker, it's different when you can play any moment with an online game with people from all around the world, strangers or bots or close friends from college. It's really different from like always meeting for like a Thursday night game, for example, in person. So it's not that everything is lost. It's some of them are radically changed. And some of them, we have a choice to say, you know what, I don't have to do that. I don't have to do that. I mean, I I wrote a story for it was an op ed for the Times about downgrading my technology. And it was kind of a lighthearted piece, but some of it um, was real. And and one one of the choices I've made is that as high tech as I am at work, and I am super early adopter at work, because you have to be in our industry, as with most industries, be on top of all of that technology has to offer and be in touch with the ways in which people are consuming the news and other information. But 
in my home life, in my personal life, I have a choice, right? And it's earlier today, for example, a colleague and I were buying a little present to thank you for another colleague who's had a really hard work week. And I said, do you want to go in on this with me? And she said, yes. And then she said, you know, can I Venmo you the amount? And I said, I, I don't do Venmo. And she was like, what? How can you not have Venmo? She's like, what do you do to split the check with friends? And I said, well, we either do the, you know, splitting among the credit cards or we take turns treating. But like, it's your choice. You know, you don't have to choose a new technology or go along with it just because it's available. And I think a lot of people are starting to make that choice. And I guess what I wanted to do is kind of for people who remember the before times, reflect on it and remember, like, there are alternatives. There are other ways of doing things we tend to forget, right? Because it's really hard to remember, like, what was life like before email? Um, what was life like before texting? And for people who grew up digital natives, I think it's really interesting for them to sort of see, oh, all this stuff that I thought this was the way the world is, isn't necessarily the way it has to be. There's another way of doing things. You know, there, there's this... Um, app, I think it's called, I get the name wrong, I think it's called Diplo, um, or Dipso, I'm going to get the name wrong. But it's kind of amazing. It It's popular among teenagers, and it essentially replicates the experience of having to wait for film to develop, which is what we all once had to do, right? And there was a kind of excitement to that, right? You took your little roll of 24 or 32 down to the nearest, you know, Fujifilm or Snaps or whatever the chain was, or to a pharmacy when that became available, and you'd give it to the clerk, and you'd come back a week later with your film developed. And during that period, you'd be like, I don't even remember what was on that roll, you know, and you would see it and you'd be like, I don't even remember these pictures being taken. And of course, that experience is gone. Well, there's an upside to that, right? You can take a zillion photos for free and just pick the one good one that comes out um, and you don't have to wait to see it. But there's also something kind of lost, like that excitement, that mystery, that anticipation. So it's interesting that teenagers are sort of trying to replicate to retrieve that experience. And so for them, I wanted to document, you know, this is how it used to be. And, you know, for people of my generation and perhaps yours, like we remember the stories that our own parents told us about like what life was like. I mean, I remember my dad talking about playing stickball in Brooklyn, and that just seemed like such ancient times. Of course, we played kickball, you know, in my street growing up. But like the things that he did back then seem like so long ago. And I think this is my way of kind of showing the next generation like, hey, you know, this is what it used to be like. And some of it could be yours if you want. Yeah, I remember my dad telling me stories like that. And I remember rolling my eyes at him. And I'm sure my kid will roll his eyes at me when I tell the same kinds of stories. And so it goes. We're just rolling uh, the eyeballs along, yeah. Sean. Yes, this is what it means to get old. Do you worry, though, that maybe we're granting too much power to our technology that maybe our inner lives haven't really changed nearly as much as we think, but rather we just have more tools to express ourselves, to show who we are, who we've always been as human beings. Well, I'm sure there's some truth to that. But I also think, you know, having those tools, right, brings out the yearning to use those tools, the habit of using those tools. I mean, it's extraordinary just how habit-oriented human beings are. And there have been a number of books in recent years about how easily we form habits and how hard it is to break them. But if you think about some of your own daily habits around the internet, they're probably really ingrained at this point. 
just really used to it, to being able to Slack, text, Google search something, ask Siri, where the hell am I? Where is the gas station? Where is the best burger on, you know, the I-95 when you're in the middle of Maryland? It's really hard to remember what it was like before. I, I just think in using those tools, we really have adopted habits that I think are pretty ingrained. So I, I do think it is pretty powerful. I do think it's changed us. Yes. No, I'm I'm a believer in that, that in some ways we become the tools of our tools and, and they change us as much as we interact. Yeah. I mean, personally, I have to say, one thing that's really affected me as a writer is the exclamation point. I used to be super opposed to the exclamation point. That exclamation point was bad writing. You know, you used it very judiciously. It's really hard for me now to write a single email or text without the exclamation point. I actually try because I wrote this book, you know, and I wrote about one of the things being lost is the period. And I try to use the punctuation the way it's meant to be used. It takes an effort and often I delete it because it looks wrong. It looks, you look like a jerk if you say thank you with a period. Yeah. And, you know, you even talk about your anxieties about watching, you know, your things, as you put it, like the things that you understood the things that were formative in your life just sort of disappearing and being left behind and not being taken up the next generation. And is it basically when it comes down to it, just the experience of of all these losses kind of just piling up one after another, just the experience of getting older, <laughs> watching the world <laughs> kind of fly by and shapeshift into something that's less and less familiar? Yeah, I mean, look, that problem isn't new and the internet didn't cause it. That's just the, the human experience. But I do think that the internet has accelerated it. I will mercifully let you go. Pamela Paul, this was a lot of fun. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, it was a lot of fun for me, too. I hope it wasn't too depressing. <laughs> no, trust me. I, normally, normally, this is way more depressing given the topics I, I gravitate to. This is a reprieve. Oh, good, good. Bittersweet. That's what we're aiming for. <laughs> Vox Conversations is produced by Eric Janikis. Our editor is Amy Drostovska. Paul Robert Mouncy mixed and mastered this episode. Our theme music was dreamed up by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. And Amber Hall is the deputy editorial director of Vox Talk. If you like the show, let us know. Room for improvement, we want to hear that too. We're curious to know what you think, what you want more of, what we could improve. And if you have ideas for future guests or topics, send us your thoughts at voxconversations at vox.com. And hey, if you did like this episode, share it with your friends, rate and review. 